Hello. It's Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours. Follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. This is me, Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson 5 on Twitter. And this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. Uh, I've been, I guess, part of, part of unemployed quarantine is getting drawn back into Twitter fights or something. I don't know. Twitter's, Twitter's getting wild again. And it's, yeah. The, uh, the uh, sort of revanchist, counter-revolutionary Biden people really feeling themselves today. Oh it's, yeah, dude. it's it's really it's really scary. Honestly, those people are those people like are really scary. Before we get into that, I just want to make a quick a uh, quick announcement. So our RS RSS feed is up. So we are on Spotify. We have an RSS feed. Um. You can also follow us on Podbean. That's where we're hosting our RSS feed. So I've I've been getting, I've been getting a lot of questions about like our RSS feed and all that. So it's finally up and running. Um, if you follow our Twitter, I pinned the 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 link. Also for this episode, I'll just I'll just put the Podbean um, link just for I'll I'll try to put the Podbean link on all our episode show notes so that people can easily follow us on Podbean and get the RSS feed directly from there. Uh, we're on Spotify. Working on getting on iTunes, it, uh, Apple iTunes is a weird kind of Byzantine process when it comes it's, to it's 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 very weird. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they do it on purpose just to kind of weed people out. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so that's just just some kind of quick house cleaning for you know uh, people who are wondering. So you can so you, especially since so you can stay up to date with all the stuff we have because we have yeah. a lot of great episodes. So if you want to stay quickly up to date, just you know, uh, follow us on Spotify. Our Podbean is is really useful because you can follow us on Podbean, download the episodes from there, get our RSS feed. We are on SoundCloud as well. You can follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, what's most important, Patreon. Support our Patreon. If you support yeah. our Patreon, five dollars a month, you get bonus episodes, twice the number of episodes, yeah. five dollars a month. Patreon.com slash Real Sankara Hours. And yeah, Peter, why don't you, uh, you know, tell uh, them what they're going to get? Yeah, we just recorded an episode going through The Weapon of Theory by Amilcar Cabral, who is a, who was a Pan African, uh, guerrilla, uh, leader and theoretician. Um, it's it it was that was really great it's a really great thing we'll be doing a lot more of that kind of stuff going you know deep into theory and like fanon i think we're doing next week um about revolutionary art uh i i mean honestly that's where a lot of the good stuff is so i would yeah. i would recommend subscribing to to get that yeah yeah so uh www.patreon.com slash real sankara hours if you donate at least five dollars a month you get access to our bonus episodes um including again the, uh, like peter said the episode on amilcar cabral weapon of theory that was i had a i was i was i thought that was a really good episode that we recorded it's a really fun episode so um yeah. So anyway, that's uh, just I just want to make the the kind of house housekeeping announcement because I I've been getting again questions about our RS RSS feed and how much and again I'm gonna make it I'm gonna I'm gonna make an effort to put our Podbean URL our RSS feed link and all that so it's easier so it's easier for people to stay up to date. Um, so anyway, uh, anyway, uh, with that said, um, 
Yeah, speaking of the uh, Biden people and why they're feeling themselves, the reason why they're feeling themselves is because Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race. Well, technically suspended his campaign. Suspended, yeah. Which is not necessarily the same thing as dropping out, but... Uh, like, he'll still be on the ballot, I think, or something. Yeah, yeah, he'll still be on the ballot to collect delegates, so. Yeah, so you can still vote for him, assuming they even have any primaries, which I don't really understand what's going on with all of that. Um, but, yeah, there's, there are people who are trying to do, I've heard some people trying to be like, no, like, you can, we can still try and make it a contested convention. There's not going to be a convention, you guys. Um, I you can call. I can call that one. They're gonna have what fifteen thousand people zoom in all at once. Um. <laughs> Man, wouldn't that let, that'd probably like crash the fucking server, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> to get to get all yeah. those people on a Zoom meeting, fifteen thousand, like the amount of bandwidth and power. Well, they, 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 I mean, knowing the Democratic Party, they would try and create their own server, and then it would somehow end up like blowing up the entire server farm. Yeah. Um, Probably shutting down the power, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, and then cause a blackout in Milwaukee. Real tech geniuses running that shit. I mean, they did a they did a really great job with the app in Iowa, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, real great job. Uh, so yeah, so uh, the you know kind of left the the Bernie Sanders supporters base and the broader left is kind of like um in collective mourning i i have i have a lot of thoughts but peter why, why, why don't you start because uh what's your sort of take on the situation i mean i mean i think i'm not surprised i think we all knew this was coming and yep. i'm kind of I'm almost relieved in the sense that like now i don't have to hear about as much about election bullshit because there's not there's like literally gonna be nothing to talk about i think whatever kind of you know sort of media games the Trump and Biden campaign will try to play, will, you know, take a backseat to the obvious pandemic. I think that I, I think he dropped out now because they were probably like, well, you know, we have to keep having all these primaries because Bernie Sanders won't drop out. Um, so <laughs> I think he I mean, you know, true to form, he did it to save lives because he's like almost a little too selfless or yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what goes on in that man's mind. I it's not it's it's not really worthwhile to think of Bernie Sanders as like a, the man and more just like yeah. as an avatar for a phenomenon in America. But um yeah, it's I mean it sucks, honestly. I'm not happy about it, but you know, I'm mu- I'm much less happy about the triumphalism and all and the reemergence of the care lord libs who are like who I I swear like they enjoy voting for people they don't like like oh like, yeah. there's some sort of masochism involved where like they don't feel like they're allowed to really vote they're like yeah no I I yeah I don't like Joe Biden but I'm going to vote for him you're damn right I will I'm like it's so fucking weird like these he's like a, these he's people... a fucking brain dead predator dude he... I they is they're like people who take pride in eating shit like they're just yeah. like mm, i love doo-doo i just love all this doo-doo in my face i'm gonna vote for biden yeah. he's doo-doo like it yeah there's something that's like i like wh- what kind of like these people 
Well, they have they, they have no principles. That's the thing. They have no principles. Well, yeah. At all. Well, they're the people who no. They have, they're they're very principled because they're PMC and they love rules. But it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, they're like they're the kinds of people who would like go to the shit restaurant and get served the bowl of shit and then like send the bowl of shit back because there's like a hair in it and like yell at the yeah. wait staff mm-hmm. for not for not um getting or like the bowl of shit was too cold or something right but like for them it's like they still want to eat the the bowl of shit for some reason i don't know i as i don't really care as long as they don't try and do that you are complicit you are you know you're basically voting oh, for God. trump and crap because like Ugh. if you if if you actually care about unity or whatever then uh then you really need to stop that shit i mean like they're like because we'll just stop listening to you because you don't have any power actually here's another stupid argument that they usually say because because like um again like we were saying in the last like i was saying in the last in the last episode about biden the past four years when it comes to the kind of liberal to progressive to left energy the a lot of the energy w- wasn't really focused on actual issues um that are going on in the world and in the country and it wasn't People weren't really focused on like, okay, what with with this kind of unprecedented, uh, open white supremacist neo fascist in Trump and as president, you know, what kind of society are we going to build? How are we going to work toward it? Like that's not where the left energy was. It was all a lot of it was like this sort of, and and for fair reasons, I get it, but like a lot of a lot of the energy was how to get rid of trump trump is the most evil person he's existential and if we can just get rid of trump things would be great well i mean the problem with that is even before trump even you know as i explained about obama's foreign policy trump is largely con- continuing the bush obama post 9-11 counterterrorism, endless war foreign policy so trump isn't really a huge break from the system so there's that but another thing like people will say you know when, when they say like uh like a lot, a lot, a lot of these uh, sort of professional managerial class kind of libs, right? Like they'll usually say, you know, I'm in solidarity with people of color, and you know, it's such a privilege for me to not be worried about how Trump is. So if I vote for Biden, even though he's bad, I'm acting in solidarity with people of color because Trump is so bad at people yeah. of color. Yeah. And if and if you don't vote for Biden, if you don't vote for Biden, you are privileged. Okay, that is privilege. You need to check your privilege. I'm like, I'm gonna sh- like uh, shut the f- <laughs> like sh- let's shut this shit up. Like I'm I- black. I'm black. Okay. Like if 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 all these like I, white liberals want to do this like, yeah, I mean I'm solidarity with the people of color, blah 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 blah. Like I'm black, okay. I've been black for my entire life, and I'm gonna tell you this, like I've I've never really felt safe <laughs> in America, regardless of who's who's president. And people forget Black Lives Matter started under Obama, okay. So even under Obama, there are still countless numbers of black people being murdered by the police with no justice. So. If you're black in America, like your your personhood is, you know, is always under siege, so to speak, right? Because that's the reality of institutional racism. So it really doesn't matter. Like this, like that's why I don't feel like. I mean, not. To, I don't want to water down like how bad Trump is. Of course, he's a horrible, despicable president. But that doesn't mean that. I, as a black person, am, am somehow more safe under a Democrat because that's not how that's I don't I don't like. Yeah, like just just having Biden as president is not going to make my life as a black person improve that much. 
It's just, that's not, it won't happen because this, the system itself is built to subjugate and oppress black people and people of color. So it really doesn't matter in terms of who's, whether or not you vote Democrat or Republican. That's, it's not going to change that fundamental systemic reality. You might get maybe a little bit of relief. I mean, so to speak, but even with Biden, I don't like, he's not a, it's, I don't even it, think he's not even a lesser evil. So that argument doesn't, that yeah. argument doesn't work. And it, and it's also like, one of the real problems amongst sort of the liberal body politic is basically, and it's because they have convinced themselves that they're the smart ones, so they can never yep. admit that maybe they're being suckers about something. Bingo. Um, and so, you know, it's not even really about like, oh, is there like relief or like, will Biden be less bad? Because like these things operate in a, sorry to use the word, dialectic. Um in the sense that, like, there's a reaction to, so, you know, whatever Biden does. And also, like, yeah, I'm sorry, but fuck all the people who, like, use, like, the kids in the cages at the border as, like, a shield to make you or me, like, feel, to, to claim that, like, we're, you know, sort of not serious or, like, bad people or our politics are disingenuous. Yeah. I know I've done more political work than these people. Well, also, also, where the fuck were they when Obama was deporting people, huh? Where were they? I mean, I mean, they may they may have been there, you know, tepidly or something. But I, my larger point is like, uh, they don't. None of these people have an answer for Tom Cotton, or or they don't understand that like Trumpism is here. Like it's like that is the current iteration of the Republican Party. It is, and that's not going to change. And like the worst thing that's going to happen is that you know you'll get a competent trump which is yeah like tom cotton or josh holly or some of these other people you know what i don't know which one it's going to be they're all kind of interchangeable you know pudge faced like demon spawn but yeah though one of those people who like straight up will just talk about like the most psychotic shit are ready to like go to war with china right now like like the real fucking thing um because there are some apocalyptic people like in and around the republican party who who yeah they want the war they want like they think america is only good when it's like at war so i like no the democrats don't have any strategy for that they don't have any strategy to permanently sideline the republican party liberals uh, i don't remember who said this but someone but there's a quote where it's like the definition of a liberal is someone who is too broad-minded to take his own side in an argument and i think that's how a lot of these a lot of these people still operate this way or it's like yeah they would never even dream of while as republicans would have no problem with america being a permanent republican one-party state democrats would never even dream of such a thing much less sort of work in a way to actually eliminate their political opponents well and this actually gets into my kind of my reaction and again i'll repeat because uh i know this kind of argument is going to come up and i just want to say it again like you know if people are going to use like especially white liberals they're going to use like the solidarity people of color and like this is why i have to vote for biden because i support people of color that's all bullshit okay it's bullshit i'm not listening to it i don't take it fucking seriously and yeah i'm speaking as a black person i get tired of when white liberals pull that guilt shit because it doesn't do anything it it isn't they also they also invariably to a t like everyone who says that like makes more money than i do so i don't know what the hell they're talking about 
Right, exactly. And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat, I'm gonna repeat it again. You know, as you know, as a black person and as black people in America, like the Democratic Party is not our friend. The Republican Party is not our friend. This entire two party system is not our friend. Our is not our friend, and it's ne- it's never it's never been structurally built to work for black liberation or to to pr- to protect the well being of black people in America. So it doesn't. At the end of the day, you might get theoretically you might get a tiny bit of relief under Democrats, but fundamentally, like you, uh, the the personhood and the sanctity and the well being of black people collectively. Um, it is is not safe and it's not protected under either party. So, um, again, and that's why I brought up Black Lives Matter. That was under Obama, a black president. Yeah, so even even under a black president, black people were still being killed man. by the police with no justice, and he didn't do anything. It, like the Obama administration that's did nothing except release some report confirming what we already yeah, know. Yeah, about they had they, no Adam. That's not fair. They had a commission. They had a task force and they oh, right, they yeah. studied and you know that's the that's the best thing a liberal can do is form a task force and, uh, yeah and what usually what the ta- the task force did is it told the police department to check their privilege that's what it did yeah. told them yeah to yeah and hold implicit bias training with uh with cops with swastika tattoos right yeah, so so again, like, you know, when people want to bring up that argument, I'm just like, look, like, being black in America, I know for a fact that, like, my personhood is not fully safe because you're li- I'm living under perpetual systemic racism. So, like, voting for a Democrat doesn't change that fundamental reality. Theoretically, you might get some relief, theoretically, but the fundamental, the fundamental reality does not change. And the fundamental real- reality, sure as fuck, will not change with Biden in office. I mean, because, I mean, people should listen to the episode we did about Biden, but, I mean, that guy's got to start working with segregationists. And so, so again, if you want to pull that card, like, sorry, it's not going to work. But my, my reaction to, um, uh, you know, I heard about the news, like, you know, when I woke up and, uh, I, um, you know, I heard that, that Sanders dropped out. I mean, my immediate reaction was like, oh, I didn't think he was going to do it right now. I thought he would have, I thought he would have waited a little bit, like maybe till the convention, then drop out. And, you know, but yeah, I, the, yeah, I was definitely under the impression he'd like wait through the primaries, but yeah, I think, yeah. I think, I'm sure the media was going to start blaming him if anyone died from a primary. It was going to be Bernie Sanders' fault because, mm-hmm. um, when it's not Russia's fault, it's the left's fault. Yeah. Uh, so I have some thoughts. I mean, I I'm not surprised he dropped out. I was I just didn't expect him to drop out this soon. But I kind of kind of saw it coming. And I think I remember saying this in an episode we recorded like about a month ago um, about like you know if Bernie Sanders drops out, like where does that where does his base and where does his where do his supporters go? Um, so my I think Bernie Sanders did a good job of. Um, being a gateway to left-wing ideas and politics. I think he did a good job of that, and I think that was important, and I think it was important to broaden the left-wing community to people who otherwise probably wouldn't be exposed to those kinds of ideas. So I think that's good. And to people who are, you know, Peter and I have been on, on the, the left for a while now, and, and you know, as, as, as if, if there are people in the Sanders campaign who are feeling you know down i say welcome to the left 
we're we're used to losing <laughs> so uh but, but we but, know it well we know it well um so but you know i i say like you know we welcome you to the this broad family that we call the left um so there's that i i don't want to be like haha i told you so that's what you get for working the democrats like okay yeah but not 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 every not people's political evolution is different so i'm not gonna you know try to call people stupid for for thinking that people, people, uh, some people gotta learn the hard way or yeah. they have to go through the experience yeah yeah and so my my thoughts i just i kind of wrote down some thoughts just to kind of get off my chest but um i i i, I do think that sanders loss honestly this is going to be a bitter pill to swallow but i think it all it falls on him before you blame anyone else, it falls on Sanders and his campaign, but primarily Sanders. And this is why. It's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain why I think the Sanders loss falls on him. Um, one, I don't think Bernie Sanders had it in him to win. I, I don't think he really had it in him to be uh, to really take power and win the presidency. I don't think it didn't seem like he really wanted it. I think if he wanted it, he would have fought a lot harder. And I... I that's why i'm surprised that he dropped out so soon i thought like he could have at least like fought through the primary to the convention um you know just in kind of i've been reading about like stuff going on his campaign and, and this just my general assessment is uh you know i don't i don't think the bernie sanders campaign did enough to broaden the uh coalition to people outside of the campaign and i think um you know i think i've said this before but i'll say it again like I think Bernie Sanders could have done more to reach out to non-voters and people who are gen- generally shut out of politics and think politics is stupid and it's bullshit because they don't see it improving their lives. I think those people are, are largely up, up for grabs and could be far more susceptible and friendly to progressive ideas than MSNBC watching uh, centrists. But it, it seemed like... Um, from what I understand, the Sanders campaign was more focused on trying to get thirty um, percent in each state through the primary. Um, I'm just giving a general assessment. I don't work in campaigns, um, but this is just my general assessment. Um, and also, I think the the Sanders campaign under not even just the campaign, but a lot of his supporters, I think, probably underestimated the degree to which the electorate was largely concerned with getting rid of Donald Trump and not quite on uh, um, agreeing with a certain list of policies. And I think that's why a large number of people went for Biden. Cause I think like people just had that a lot of times when, you know, when people vote, like they're not thinking about like which policy I agree with and da 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 Like they're usually most people who are average voters don't think on that granular of a level. I think, you know, again, the past four years throughout corporate media and in the mainstream media has been like, Trump is an existential threat. He's evil. He's evil, blah, blah, blah. And so when people vote, the first thing that's going to be on their mind is who's going to defeat Trump. And I think Bernie Sanders early on should have made the case that he was the guy to defeat Trump, not Biden or anyone else. He should have made that clear, like, I'm the guy to defeat Trump. Because I don't think he um, won people's confidence on that electability front. So I think there's that. And a, a, a few other things. Um, 
uh, two more things, another thing, and then the the most important lesson. I'm at, the most important lesson is going to be last, but one more thing, and then then that one. Um, I I think uh, uh, Bernie, he was just too fucking saying shit like Joe Biden is my friend. Like I'm sorry, he kind of shot himself Ooh, in the. F- that's he, a, he sh- that shit made me hot. Yeah, like he should have never, because he wanted to have it both ways. He wanted to say. I'm going against the Democratic establishment. Well, who is that? He never named any names. And then when it came to people who are clear members of the Democratic establishment, like Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer, he's like, no, 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 I'm not going to go after Biden. He's my friend. It's like, okay, you can't have it both ways. You have to, like, if you're going to say, I'm going against the Democratic establishment, you got to go at Biden hard. And he didn't. So now we're stuck with Biden. And the most important lesson that I really want to hammer home and like I said, you know, someone who's been in left politics and spaces for a while now, uh, this, this, this is the conclusion I've come to. Um, the most important lesson is, um, look, like the, the assumption that working within the Democratic Party to advance progressive ideas is false. The, the Democratic Party entry, entryism, uh, I, I think Bernie Sanders and his campaign, I think, were banking on that it would be possible to work within the Democratic Party machine to advance progressive to social democratic ideas. And that was always, always a very flawed premise and assumption from the start. And I think Bernie Sanders losing and dropping out. It's proof of that, because as we said in a couple episodes before, the Democratic Party establishment was pretty hell-bent on undermining him and making sure he didn't win the nomination, especially early on when when he had good momentum. They were hell-bent on making sure he wouldn't win the nomination. And I think, like, you know, if you understand the Democratic Party and how they function, that makes sense. Because the Democratic Party, structurally, is not a party for the working class structurally is meant to protect corporate america and the petty bourgeoisie right so again i'm gonna say it again the democratic party is not a pro-worker party it's not a progressive party it's really fundamentally a corporate party a petty bourgeois party that makes some concessions to multiculturalism and and you know window dressing when it comes to labor but for the most part Structurally, the Democratic Party is built to protect the interest of large corporations and the petty bourgeoisie. So, and and assuming that you could advance social democratic policies that do threaten those interests, thinking that you could advance those ideas within a party that's built to protect corporate interests and petty bourgeois interests, those things are irreconcilable. You, you can't, you can't, like, like, they're always in conflict with each other. So one side is going to win. You, there's no way to meet in the middle between corporate interest and, and social democrat, socialist or progressive interest. So when you have a party that's structurally built to protect corporate and elite interests, there's no way they were going to let someone like Sanders win. So there had to be a plan B, like I said in one of the previous episodes, like, okay, if Sanders loses, what's the plan B? And this is where we're at now. And I think that the left, um, you know, we need to take that seriously. So I think like pre- pre- for people who are sad it's okay to be sad like i get it like and, and i i genuinely feel i feel bad for all those people who campaigned for sanders 
like god they must they must feel like shit like i feel bad like that like to because sanders like built up a lot of people's hope provided a lot of hope for millions of people and to drop out of the race like this it's like that's a huge defeat you know but 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 it's also i think it's important to be a little more sober in our analysis of the situation and just acknowledge that look the democratic party was never going to let him win and you need to, we need a plan b so that's that's just how i feel I, th- I think that's that's to me that's the most important lesson that like trying to work within the democratic party to to advance progressive socialist ideas it was never going to work and god god do something different yeah i i probably i think i'm on a couple of minds about the campaign i think actually sort of ironically he could have i think he might have been able to win just because he's a very capable politician um that if he had just ran a straight insider like traditional campaign and you know didn't sort of because what they were trying to do, especially this time around, is sort of make it like a campaign movement, wherein, like, instead of just, like, you know, sort of sucking up the, uh, you know, all the oxygen from, like, you know, energy around social movements that are going on in the left. I mean, that happened to some degree. I mean, I, there was a sincere effort to sort of, you know, fuse the uh, the campaign into, like, existing labor struggles and social movements and stuff and i think that what they did i think that was successful to some degree and i think that's something worthy of study yeah um because that was very interesting and i think that's a good way you know for the left broadly speaking to to approach electoral campaigns if that's kind of the direction we want to go you know, especially sort of in the hyper-saturated media era. But, yeah, I, overall, overall, um, you know, the, the deck was stacked heavily against him. And I think that trying to do an outside... You could, he could have either done, like, a purely insider campaign or a purely outsider mercenary campaign where he, yeah, like, per, was going to purge half the Democratic Party and not really talk to anyone or make any deals, you know, and just like do it all on his terms. Um, I think, and just have said, fuck everyone. Um, he tried to, he, he, you know, he kind of got caught in the middle in that sense. And I think, yeah, part of it is just like, that is actually his style of politics. Um, he's not, he's, he's been, you know, he's been successful because he's been able to basically work alone, but like sort of, you know, leading a, group you know i mean the campaign is basically like a corporation and you know doing that kind of doing that kind of sort of executive activity is not necessarily a strong suit so i understand that but still i think you know in the sort of final analysis i think there was actually a point where he could have won after nevada i that was when everyone was scared and yeah you know, I remember thinking, you know, and I largely held my tongue during the campaign because that's, you know, part of what message discipline is about is, you know, weight is not like popping off like when things are at the at their hottest. But there are a couple of things that I noticed were curious. You know, one, of course, was the way he like hung Zephyr Teach out out to dry for calling Biden corrupt. That yeah. Was, and the other one was basically that he didn't 
fly to South. He wasn't in South Carolina at all, basically after Nevada. And yeah, he didn't even try to press Clyburn's Clyburn to not endorse anyone. Like, you know, like Harry Reid didn't endorse anyone. And that was a big reason why he was able to win Nevada, you know, just to just to like gum up the machinery a little bit in that way and not get blown out by uh, not get blown out in South Carolina. I think that because they were scared at that point and, you know, South Carolina made them able to sort of reestablish, you know, get their narrative back on track. And then that provided the basis for you know, the, the call from Barry or whatever to, yeah. to, to do the house of cards shit. Uh, that moment right there before that, you know, for South Carolina, I, I think that, you know, because I remember watching the Hill and there was some, you know, stupid dem op who, but what he was basically saying, like, yeah, if Bernie wins South Carolina, the whole race is over. Um, and you know, that he didn't, that like they didn't see South Carolina as a strategic necessity, I think is a big is the thing that I would really hang on them as like an oversight because Yeah. You know, I mean fine, whatever, it's hindsight. And I understand that like you know, at the time, like, yeah, you got like you literally have to build everything and you have limited resources and I mean, you know, that we are looking back at things, but we're looking looking back at things with the purpose of drawing lessons. So it's not about like blaming people as much as it is about Yeah. You know. That's why they call us a science. Right, yeah. And like again, like, you know, I, I totally like in the moment, I think, you know, the things that Bernie Sanderson's campaign did, like I don't I don't like they made sense. Like I'm not gonna you know, say that everyone in the the campaign was like, "Oh, they're all stupid." I know the answers, but because like you know, I'm I'm you know I'm trying to make sense of it just like everybody else. But I do think that there are some, you know, just looking at this big picture wise, I do think that there are some important lessons to learn for the left going forward. And I think it's important to learn those lessons because I don't think it's a good idea uh, for all that Bernie Sanders energy and his supporters and his base to just get sad and have that energy not go anywhere that's a bad idea and that's something i don't want to see i don't i don't want to see all those people who work their asses off to get to canvas for bernie sanders and all that energy that's built up that energy can't just 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 go nowhere it has to go somewhere and i think in order to move forward it's important to i i think again to just have a sober analysis and you know i'm i'm not trying to like point fingers and assign blame but yeah peter you're right this is basically a science right like if you have a science experiment you run it and the experiment fails doesn't go the way you expected then you look at it, okay what happened what, what, what led up to this um and so i think um even when it comes with south carolina uh you know the rhetoric with that even as we talked about before was like the democrats made that the black people primary like somehow like all the opinions and feelings of black America is, is summed up in South Carolina. Like, and so it's like, okay, Bernie Sanders loses South Carolina. He loses all black people. Forget the fact that there's black people in Chicago and Detroit and New York and Oakland and Los Angeles and everywhere throughout the country, right? Like, oh, okay. Like those black people don't exist. They all exist in South Carolina for some reason. Okay. So the South Carolina primary was like supposed to be the black people primary that's all bullshit, but that's how it was fucking framed. That framing's stupid. I, I do want to talk about, just make a quick mention of, because um, I think, like, there's a, there's, 
another warning I want to give is like, I I don't want people to blame black voters for Sanders' loss because I can definitely see that happening. Because it's like, okay, Bernie Sanders lost South Carolina because black people voted for Biden and Jim Clyburn. And so like that becomes a proxy for like, okay, then that means all black voters are stupid and they're all conservative and blah, blah, blah. It's like, wait, hold up. Like, listen, put the brakes. All right. Before you say that shit. Um, I, I said this in the last episode and I'll repeat it again. And I kind of want to make it a, a, a recurring point in his podcast is, Look, the reality is there is no organized black politics in America, period. doesn't exist. You have black people who vote, but that's not black politics. And what I mean by that is there is no organized, independent black political voice and body politic that exists to that answers directly to the needs and political aspirations of black people collectively. That is black politics. I'll repeat it again. Like the, in order to have black politics, you need an independent organize black political force that answers directly to the needs and collective aspirations of black people that does not exist what we do have are black people and black elected officials in the democratic party that's not black politics and i'm going to explain that why that is not black politics and this applies to why the jim Clyburn endorsement should not be seen as like a political representative of black people collectively. Um, the Democratic Party, like I said, is, is structurally meant to protect the interests of corporate America and the petty bourgeoisie. Structurally, the Democratic Party is bolstered by the very forces that oppress black people and bleed black people dry. B- large corporations, real estate, even big tech. Um, we can go down a list, but the, the kinds of the institutional corporate forces that back up the Democratic Party are the same forces that uh, keep black people collectively in a state of misery and a state of collective suffering. So you can't have black politics in conjunction with the party that works against black people's interests. Th- th- those things are they're antagonistic. They don't go together. It's not black politics. You can have black elected officials in, in the Democratic Party, but that's not black politics. In the same way that like you can have black people elected as Republicans, but that's not black politics. Okay, so, and I and I think that's really really important. There is no organized black politics. There there used to be black politics in the '60s, '70s, and even to some extent in the '80s. I mean, you had like. Obviously, there's a Black Panther Party, but then there are people like Ron Dellums and, and Jesse Jackson with the Rainbow Coalition. Like, they answered, they, like, they had some accountability to the black community and did represent, um, black collective political interest, uh, black collective, uh, interests. Like, in the sense that, you know, those kinds of politicians or came organically from the black community and had progressive politics. Um, but that doesn't exist anymore. Um, there, there really is no organized black body politic. It's all been sucked into the Democratic Party machine, um, corporate media, um, uh, ac- academia, and, and like, like there's there's barely any black professors in academia. And again, academia is a pretty conservative institution. Um, and and on also and also the nonprofit nonprofit sec nonprofit sector. Um, that's not really black politics. That's black people in positions, in certain positions within the the social, economic, and political system. Okay, that's cool. You have leaders and spokespeople 
That's not black politics. It's not organized bottom up, bottom up black politics. That's not what that is. So, you know, when, before people start assigning blame to black people, you have to recognize that fact that there is no bottom up organized black body politic. So as a result, black people's rage kind of goes in different directions. So it's like, okay, like some black people aren't going to vote. Some of them are going to vote Democrat. Uh, some of them are going to vote for Biden. It's all over the place because it's not organized. So if you're reaching out to black voters, you have to understand that reality. There's there's no organization. A lot of it got killed by FBI and the COINTELPRO and got sucked up by the system. Co- yeah. Co-opted very, very easily by nonprofits, Democratic Party, yeah. and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, Black Lives Matter, I mean, represented sort of that pot that spark that possibility but it was very very quickly overrun with you know foundation mm-hmm. grant and grants and you know sort of the nonprofit industrial complex specifically with the purpose of co-opting it and smothering it and integrating it back into yeah. the democratic party when that was i mean fucking jay nixon was a fucking democrat people you know every every city's murderous police department as a democratic mayor so yeah you know like i've i've been i've been to plenty of local city council meetings when it comes to gentrification and police violence with black and non-white elected officials and a lot of them routinely side with police and real estate so again that's not black politics and again uh, yeah i'm glad you mentioned black lives matter uh peter because I do remember, like, that was actual, like, organic black politics. It was organic rage from the black community collectively against ongoing systemic yeah. police violence. And, and it went nowhere. It, didn't, it wasn't organized. Yeah, I mean, I even remember, like, very specifically, like, them having, I think Al Sharpton wanted to show up to some event or something, and they, like, kind of shouted him down, and there was very much a struggle that... That we're, I mean, this wasn't really covered by the media as much, but if you're sort of more tuned in, you would see that, like, there is very much a struggle against sort of those uh, legacy kind of black institutions, NAACP, um, you know, National Action Network, that kind of stuff. I mean, there was kind of, there was a generational struggle in the sense of like the they understood those you know institutions as to presenting obstacles in a way. Um, for them to actually reach their goals and you know that you know that's basically been swept under the rug um we may have to get we we're definitely gonna have to like go really in depth on that at some point but yeah yeah and yeah like i said i i i'd like to make it like a recurring theme mm-hmm. because i think it's something that needs to be um dissected but yeah like black lives mattered like that was quickly siphoned into the nonprofit sector and 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 all that and so you know like there like there there are no real independent black institutions i mean the only the only thing that you can arguably say actually represented an independent black voice but there really doesn't anymore is rap music Mm -hmm. i mean there was actual like especially in early rap music the public enemy in tupac like that was real organic black radical messaging and not even that exists anymore i mean there's kendrick lamar but for the most part i mean like drake i mean come yeah, on yeah <laughs> the, po- the politics it's i mean it's not a coincidence that the politics has left hip-hop or at least i mean there's i mean now i mean now there's still like conscious rappers but they have like you know generic liberal politics like, oh yeah i listened to uh the new j electronica album um yeah he actually came out with his debut album like 20 years later 
uh, they, they bury the lead is that it's basically a Jay-Z album um, with a lot of Jay Electronica features. But yeah, I mean, it's completely apolitical until the end where they're like, they got kids at the border and, you know, cops are killing us, right? But it's not, you know, if you compare it to like KRS-One or, you know, whatever people's problems with them, I'm still a big fan of Immortal Technique. Um, where, like, they're literally giving, like, political science lectures. I mean, they're, like, breaking down, like, political economy in verses, and that that doesn't exist anymore, or at least it's much harder to find it. If, you, if anyone knows where to find it right now, please, please drop us a link, because I've been trying to find it. <laughs> yeah, so, like, there's no organized black politics. Um... I mean, aside from Drake, I mean, Jay-Z, like, look, if, if black America, like, if, if the best we can do politically is Jay-Z and Cardi B, we're in deep shit. Like, I like Cardi B, like, she says good stuff, but, like, yeah, that's she, not politics. That is not politics. Yeah, I mean, but Cardi B, that's not black yeah. politics. I'm sorry. Like, people can like Cardi B, I like what she says, but that's not black politics. Neither yeah. is Jay-Z and neither is Beyonce. That's not black politics well, at all. Yeah, I mean, the whole celebrity class is, uh, is just not it's it's anathema or not anathema it's allergic i guess to you know the actual sort of political necessities i mean and i don't know i mean i know why or i know why sort of you know white corporate media wants you know those people to be sort of the designated representatives for black people but it's not like like they don't do anything like no no it, it's like it's like if we assumed that like Toby Keith spoke for all you know white people that lived in red states, it'd be completely <laughs> absurd, right? Well, and what was also like absurd was Jay Z's. What the fuck was that meeting with the NFL? Like that, like people were trying to say like, oh, he's making a deal for like what fucking? Wh- I mean, who, I mean the people, the, the, fu- the people defending him are like sort of the uh, you know the I believe the phrase is like rise and grind Twitter, where it's like. Oh. Uh, you know, the, the ones who are like self-described hustlers and entrepreneurs who believe, who like think they're Garveyites, but they don't actually know anything about Garvey. No, yeah. And, it's, and that's like being generous. I mean, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs and like that stuff is like, I mean, it's bullshit. I mean, what Jay-Z, Jay-Z trying to strike a deal with the NFL, like that was just it was kabuki it was kabuki theater it's a fucking sham i'm sorry like i'm not gonna apologize for that like i know some people kind of had like some hope in in like you know jay-z trying to strike a deal with the nfl then it was like oh we got to boycott the nfl that was all spectacle it did nothing like nothing nothing that would come out of the nfl would have benefited black people period it was all bullshit spectacle yeah yeah there's 1500 people in the nfl like yeah i don't i don't even understand the con i mean I mean, it's a product of just like all met, you know, means of political education being completely wiped out that anyone, yeah. you know, white or black or non-black thinks that like the NFL like actually means anything it to, means they, to black America at large. Even if like, you know, Jay-Z got whatever concession he did from from the NFL, like that's not going to prevent police violence. It's not going to prevent pe- police from killing people. Like the it NFL, it wasn't even going to get Kaepernick a job, right? And it's like the NFL—they can't pass laws. Can they get like they can't get police hired and fired? 
They can't hold police accountable. So there's no point. Like, it's all spectacle. And, like, that's what I mean about black politics is that if people think that, you know, Cardi B and Jay-Z and Drake and, and all that shit represents black politics, we're in deep shit. Like, that, that is pretty sad. It Adam, really is. It's sad. Adam, I have a question. Um, huh. Do you think oh, the election of Obama represented that death of black politics? Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to be really blunt, yes. Yeah, I'd say so. I, and I'll, I'll explain why. This is, man, it's, if we can go really, in, I can go really in depth with this, but, but, um, I think, but I'll, I'll try to tie it in with, with, you know, things that are going on. But the reason why I think the election of Obama really signaled the death, signaled the death of black politics is because I, since the late sixties, early seventies, black politics i think was kind of at a crossroads what i mean by that is like you had the groups like the black panthers black liberation army like those groups that were basically a lot more radical in in their advancements yeah marxist and revolutionary in their black politics and their politics was was really a fusion i think of like national self-determination for black people and anti-capitalism and and that was largely the milieu of the time like if you were like a black or non-white radical like usually your politics were that because they're all, they're, they're all those liberation yeah and it's also i encourage people to check out our bonus episode on cabral because i think this would really contextualize what i'm saying um all, all like if, if you were a black revolutionary at the time like you were pretty much like that was part of the what was going on at the time so there was that and then there was also i think the other part of black politics was basically like okay we got the civil rights act passed the best way to achieve black liberation is integration um integration desegregation um and integration i think like the the dis, dis, discourse on it i think people forget that segregation was really had a class element to it to it in the sense that like the reason why segregation was in place was to keep black people in a lower economic position that was the point of segregation so what happened with desegregation is that you got rid of segregation but you didn't get rid of the the you, you didn't really empower black people from that position like there was no like there was no critique of of the capitalist system so and basically what it wound up being is like okay this is basically like a I would say a liberal reformist integrationist approach of black politics. And I think there is some time in the seventies where the, the, that latter part of black politics, like the liberal reformist part won, and the militant wing was, was largely snuffed out, largely snuffed out by the COINTELPRO and the FBI. Like they played a huge role in imprisoning and downright assassinating leaders like fred hampton right so and also the war on drugs in the prison system played a huge role in weakening and decapitating the the, the black radical movement so yeah um if i if i i just want to add something yeah. about integration is that uh sort of what i think which usually what usually gets left out is that uh you know alongside the civil rights act was supposed to be the fair housing act which uh yep which yep. would which would have solved sort of the problem of ghettoizing of redlining and that kind of stuff, which uh you know sort of in that in the sense and this is you know sometimes a common refrain 
in the barbershop and such is that like yeah integration was bad and that like all the middle class people moved out of black neighborhoods um a big pro i mean a big reason that you know certain neighborhoods declined precipitously is because the fair housing act got completely gutted and non and was never enforced so there were you know some legal rights but you know even during the civil rights era even during the early 60s i mean they understood you know that it's not just about lunch counters it's about you know the entire political economic system and you know that's but of course right the uh the concerned liberals uh they yeah i mean they under you know they were upset about the lunch counters but uh they could yeah the whole polit- calling into question all the political economic structure i mean they couldn't really do all that they didn't want to deal with all that so yeah i it's important to yeah it's important to understand the history of the fair housing act and basically how it got completely gutted and how that was a big contributor to the persistence of residential segregation and you know the quote-unquote decline of the inner city yeah and i mean dr king i mean toward the end of his life was calling for you know when he when he was assassinated he was you know marching with sanitation workers so he was he was uh I mean, Dr. King at the end of his life was was a lot closer in his views he, to Malcolm X. Yeah, I, I've heard I've heard that like in private, he would you know if he was talking to like Marxists, he'd be like, "Yeah, no, I mean, I, I basically agree with you." Yeah, he was always very. Ex- it's amazing actually how you know sort of message discipline he was. He never red baited, um, which I really appreciate. Yeah, and so uh, to to answer your question about Obama, I think the election of Obama is basically the ultimate conclusion of that approach. Because if, if 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 the idea of black politics is like okay, the way to get black liberation is just you know integrate into the system. Don't don't challenge capitalism. Don't don't do anything to like you know get fair housing and you know eliminate redlining and 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 all the the economic structures that keep black people. In, in basically a perpetual underclass it's like okay like that approach like they're not gonna do anything about that as long as you just reform the system p- pass pass some legislation like when it when it comes to making sure like people don't um explicitly discriminate uh that that, that if that's the approach of black politics then the ultimate conclusion is having a black president that's the ultimate conclusion of when you take that approach and obama was the ultimate conclusion of that approach and like I was saying earlier, Black Lives Matter happened under Obama. Th- that approach did not take care of, one, the systemic violence within police departments throughout the country. And Obama d- didn't do anything about that. So there's that. I mean, there's still, especially after, um, this is no- another part of stuff I typically write about, which is um, gentrification and, and the wealth gap. But after 2008, after the financial crash, because a lot of blacks and Latinos were also racially discriminated against when it came to um, banks and lenders trying to make them buy a lot of these subprime mortgage loans, which got wrapped up into derivative markets and then like, you know, uh, uh, basically laid the foundation for the crap, the 2008 crash. Um, a lot of black wealth was wiped out. So even the gains, even the, 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 the little bit of economic gains that black people made after, after 1965, that was all wiped out after 2008. So 
even with Obama in office, like that was not enough to fix those underlying systemic and deep yeah. structural and yeah, economic the, issues. The material conditions of Black America had not changed for fifty no. years. Mm-mm. No, and if anything, if like, anything by, got worse, if by twenty fifty, if 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 the same policies are in place, Black wealth will decline to zero. So, um. So yeah, so I I do think that you know because all the black political energy was focused on protecting Obama at the time and not criticizing him, yeah, black politics is it killed it. Like and then and that's a bitter pill I think for a lot of people to swallow, including a lot of other black folks. But I think look, I'm not alone in saying that because I know other black people who like you know probably wouldn't say it openly, but if I were to tell them what I'm saying, like like they yeah like they'd agree. You know, I, I have a, I know a lot of black folks who feel that way, but it, it doesn't really get said openly. But I'll say it, <laughs> like yeah, like I think the Obama presidency really killed black politics, and now we're at the point oh. where we have to rebuild it. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, and I remember thinking about this at the time, is that like, uh, yeah, it sort of represented the apotheosis of that kind of uh, liberal integrationist project, and yeah, there was nothing else to do. I mean, it was basically like, yeah, we did it. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny speaking of Tupac right if you think about the song changes right of all the mm. things that he lists right the only thing that's changed from, yeah. the, from 1996 is is that we have is that we had a black president yep, but yep. you know war on the streets and war in Middle East so war on <laughs> poverty they got a war on drugs right all that mm-hmm. stuff uh, all that's still going on but the black president changed and I th- and if you told someone in 1997 or 98, I guess, it's actually when the song came out. Though, I think, whatever. I think we'll he recorded, yeah, I think he recorded it in 96, but it came out after he died, so, yeah. Or, the verse, technically, I think, was on a different song, and then they put it on changes. But, anyway. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, and, yeah, if you were to tell someone in 1998, you know, of all the things that are listed in that song, one of these things will be different. Which one do you think it is? They would have never said yeah. that one. But yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, we pulled it off and that was, I mean, Obama was really when sort of liberal identity politics went into overdrive because, mm-hmm. I mean, really before then it was still like pretty radical stuff. I mean, talking about, you know, white privilege was was pretty contentious. I mean, be, and I know this because I was in like, uh, you know, Unitarian anti-racism workshops at the time in like 2006, 2007 you know, admittedly in mostly white surroundings and those white kids and the, uh, these are, you know, very liberal kids, right? Of course, they fucking hated talking about racism. They hated, yeah, acknowledge, you know, having to deal with, the, with their with white privilege and all that stuff. It was, I mean, it was very, it was very contentious. And, you know, when people would say, I mean, that was sort of the caricature movie dialogue of like the righteous brother was that kind of discourse. Um, and that person was always in the movie for comic relief, right? So, yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating. So on some level, it's like, you know, I guess when you, I, whatever, when you look at things dialectically, it is like that, you know, people, we have to go through some things so we see their shortcomings and then we can learn from them. But that, you know, yeah, I, I agree that like those sort of, legacy institutions that were just doing victory laps for eight years never adapted to a post-Obama era. Um, mm-hmm. 
No, and I don't I don't even think I mean to be fair, like I think black politics was in decline before Obama. I think Obama was sort of like the nail in the coffin. Um oh, or, it was like the the juice, you know, it was yeah. like the last hit, the last yeah. power up before you lost the game. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, that's the Obama years. And uh Um and I think that also ties in with the state of left politics because I think as I said in the Biden episode, um after Occupy, uh there were no like actual left institutions that were built or you know, and it's the same with Black Lives Matter, like it all got sucked up into the nonprofit sector and then well what do we have to show? More police yeah. violence? Like what what did that lead to? Like some uh, commission body, or... body cameras, Adam. That's all that's all everything. Yeah, and I think uh, probably a couple more cops probably read what Bill Hooks or something. They read no Tony Easy Coast. I'm pretty sure yeah. one cop probably read Tony. Yeah, that's the change. It, they they it, all the one the one cop who's like trying to who was like trying to hit on some black girl while he was on the job would be like yeah. pull up in the in the squad car reading Tony Easy Coats, you know? Yeah, because he's reading bags like that. Yeah, he's reading B- I, between yeah. the world and me or something. Uh, yeah, D two. I was thinking about uh, you know, I mean, basically, right, like black neighborhoods are police states but the whole the whole like sort of video category of like the cop who shows up to play basketball is <laughs> like completely sociopathic <laughs> it's in, uh, it's insane yeah. it's insane yeah. the degree to which that's just normalized yeah you know I, I guess i was thinking about this because like you know if you go to like a uh you know any sort of like big store in you know a working class area right like there's like much more security there and i and it's like yeah working class like neighborhoods are always much more policed and it's just normalized yep. right compared yeah. to rich neighborhoods but it's just, but but it's yeah. not just that like the police are always there but then just this whole concept of like they have to not only do they have to sort of appear friendly but then it's like oh actually the cop's gonna talk smack and it's like you know well, yeah the I cop mean, will the... do a hard check right well it's like um I mean, yeah, like where I live, like near Bay Point, California, like there's a ton of private security at the Safeway because there, there were a couple of robberies. But I mean, that area has always been poor, but it's like the police, like, you know, they're, I mean, from their very inception and even our, our prison system here in America, like the inception of it was largely meant to, you know, suppress black people, Native Americans and the poor. So like that's, that's a huge part of yeah. the police department's institutional culture, but also police are... You know, this is something that's, like, so American, is that we use police to deal with social problems. Like, so, what I'm talking about, like, where, near where I live, that oh, yeah. air, that area's always been poor. It's not like, hey, let's improve the economic conditions of the area. No, we're just going to have police in this, this... Because the reason why people rob the fucking Safeway is because that area's poor. So, it's like, it yeah. sucks, but it's like, you're living in a poor neighborhood where people are, you know, desperate. Yeah, you're going to yeah, I mean, get robberies. And, it, yeah, know, it's like, we... Yeah, cops do the job of social workers, you know, they sit, they, you know, send it, cops get sent on welfare checks. Like, if you're going through a mental episode, the last, the last thing you ever want to see is a police officer. I mean, that's know? how, uh, that's how, uh, oh my God, the, the one woman in, um, there's a woman, uh, oh my God, there, you know, it's, it's, it, as, as someone who's been covering police violence, even I forget the names of people who get because there's so many of these cases that happen of of pe- people who yeah. are um uh just murdered by uh police. Um, if I if I if I may offer a bit of a hot take, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I got a little tired of like having a, ta- to le- a-, a Tatiana Jefferson. That's yeah. who. Yeah, sorry, a I Tatiana got- Jefferson in, in Dallas, Texas. Yeah, I got a little tired of having to like learn all these different names, and I always felt that like there was sort of this kind of like signaling of like yeah i know all the names and that's really what it's about is knowing every name and it's like and i mean look i'm not i under i understand sort of the messaging the rhetorical goal behind it of like humanizing these people in a world where like black death is routinely normalized but i also felt like it kind of avoided like systemic conversations because it always ended up just being about an individual case yeah and it's also like i uh um i was talking to you about this for you know i think a day ago but like i mean people have been talking about uh wearing masks in public because of the the coronavirus and public health reasons yeah it's good to wear a face mask uh you know to prevent the spread of it but then people have been talking about um oh well it's a privilege for uh white people to wear masks because black people can't wear masks because like if black people wear masks they're more likely to get shot by police it's like okay yeah as a black person i understand that but it's like this sort of misses the point because the the point is not the mask the point is why are police so violent in the first place and also why do we have over policing in a time of a pandemic when we should be having more test testing and doctors what's the point of having police like do that kind of heavy enforcement that's the problem yeah yeah and yeah getting arresting someone not respecting social distancing and then putting them in jail definitely increases their risk factor right it just makes it it makes the problem worse so it's so this the real like because like like of course yeah but people say have a conversation like yes have a conversation no, but no, like no no more conversations like but it's also important how you frame the damn conversation because if 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 people want to have conversations fine but at least frame it right and what happens with these conversations like okay we're going to focus on the mask so what's the solution then black people don't wear masks and then that makes us more likely to die because the race of corona death uh, the race of coronavirus deaths for black people is already pretty sky high. So we're going to make it worse for black people by uh, no, that like, no, like, then they would just criminalize not wearing masks and then you right. get arrested for not wearing a mask. So, which again, this, this con <laughs> like a lot of times these, these conversations ignore the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is like, okay, why are we over policing during the time of a pandemic? That's the issue because when yeah. you over police cops are going to, Yes, act heavy-handed with black people. Because like I said, policing black people, indigenous people, and poor people is a huge part of institutional police culture in America. That's a problem. So when you have police deal with a pandemic, yeah, they're they're going to act that way toward black people. I mean, and, that's and, why a lot of them became cops in the first place. And, and also, like, you know, even before this pandemic, even without a mask, like, black people's lives are still in jeopardy. So... The mask is not going to change it. Is that that's what I mean? It's, it's so American. Like, w- there's something very American that like we're not able to think about systemic issues. It's always like focused on the most like minute individual things. Well, and I think and that's, that's something I, I I get tired of, particularly in the context of, of this pandemic when we should be thinking collectively and systemically. But no, we got to focus on individual shit. Well, it's a product of a uh, like a very specific op-ed genre, and it is like basically because this was like. Written in the, I, I think I saw in the Boston Globe, which I was like, of course, of course, like Boston is the epicenter of like liberal self-conscious racism where it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, living in New England, it's, it's a bit of a trip, 
I mean, I don't live in Boston, but Boston is like so notoriously racist, but also like extremely liberal. So it's really like the testing ground for all the like liberal found and yeah, because Boston is also foundation land. So it's really the testing ground for all the like liberal institution, like, you know, fake solutions and all that shit, you know, discourse, uh, innovation, I guess. Um, so of course it would be in the Boston Globe where it would be like, yeah, no, but today I can't wear a mask and I just need these white people to think about this and check their privilege when they go out wearing a mask and not thinking about it. And it's like, oh, like, I, like, what does this accomplish? I mean, again, and again, it's like black people are dying at sky high rates because like the look, systemic racism in america is a public health issue for black people that's why we have high blood pressure and that's also like what links to higher death rates for coronavirus because one of the, one of the risk factors of coronavirus is you know heart factors and heart like heart issues and stuff like that so you're already dealing with black america which we already do have very very serious public health problems within the black community because of systemic racism then you add the the reality of a pandemic and like yeah like you're gonna get higher deaths because like look being black in america is like it's health like mentally taxing and it's going to impact our mental and physical health and so it's like the issue is not the fucking mask like because we should wear the mask because we like like everyone else, we should wear we, we should wear masks. It it can mitigate the spread of coronavirus. So with a population of people in America, like black folks, who are more likely to die of coronavirus, we should wear a mask because it can say I, I want black people to live. Like if if I see a black person wearing a mask, I'm happy because like you're, you're gonna live. I want black people to live, and and I don't want uh, ongoing over policing and police violence as a way to deal with that reality and that should be the focus it's like why are we over policing during the time of the pandemic the issue is not the mask we should wear a mask the problem is the police why are police so trigger happy let's focus on that if we're going to have a conversation yeah um we're at an hour 10 so yeah i feel uh, like we should wind down yeah um I'll, I'll, I'll just, one of my more final points, um, cause again, I, I wrote down some stuff because there's stuff I wanted to get off my chest in context of, uh, COVID-19 and Bernie losing. But, um, what I was saying about, you know, democratic entry, entryism is a failing strategy. Like, look, it's being in left circles. I've been hearing that stuff a lot. And so I think this is why I feel the way I feel is, is, uh, I've, I've heard this stuff again and again. And it's like, there's this very sort of, short-sighted vision when it comes to the left is like okay the way we advance uh progressive causes is like we have to elect this particular democrat um as president or in this office it's like okay 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 but it's like well one what's the long-term vision that we want to accomplish no one asked that question um and two like okay if if working within the democratic party doesn't work what's the alternative and, and my feeling has always for a long time has been there need to be actual strong left-wing institutions like strong tennis unions, strong workers unions, industrial unions, um, workers cooperatives, uh, independent media apparatus, uh, uh, like uh, workers councils, parties, things like that. We need actual independent progressive power to do anything. And we have not done that. All the energy got sucked into trying to capture the Democratic Party. It's like, at this point, I just want to say... The left, we've been progressive, have been doing that for a long time. And look, like, 
we got to switch gears because that approach has not worked. We have to do things differently, especially in light of a pandemic. It behooves us to think differently and, and do a different strategy. So for me, it's not about like um, trying to say like we're we're smarter or like, but it's like, you know, like I've been in the left a long enough time to learn certain things. So that's where I'm coming from that. Like, I think this is an important lesson for the left going forward that it's okay to be sad that Sanders lost. I get it. And honestly, my heart goes out to all the Bernie Sanders canvassers and supporters and the people who worked hard to, to try to get him elected. My heart goes out and like, I salute you for the hard work you put in, but I do think it's time to shift gears and we got it gotta do something different you know um work to build actual left-wing and progressive institutions to to build power from the ground ground up and i would say the same thing for black politics because speaking of naacp when i was in college i was involved in naacp and um i mean they to be honest they don't really do much and the kind of the same frustration i feel about left politics i feel about black politics and i think for me, for me, the way going forward, now that black politics is where it's at, we have to build, we have to build it, build it from the ground up. We can't give up. We can't be in a, we can't be in a situation where, um, we just think it's normal that black people keep that black people die at higher rate at higher rates because of coronavirus. Like in a place like Chicago, which has like I think what thirty percent black population, seventy percent of the deaths of coronavirus deaths are black people. That's unacceptable. That should we shouldn't live in a world where that's normal. I don't want to live in a world where that's normal. I don't want to live in a world where um, police violence against black people is normal. So if, if we're serious and if, if that's something we're serious about and we want something better, then we have to change our approach when it comes to fighting for that. And for me, like, this, the, you know, this is one of the few times, like, uh, one thing that is actually nice about the podcast is I feel a lot freer saying what i think should happen because as a journalist what i like being as a journalist is i get to just try to report the facts and i like just reporting facts because i think it's important just to get you know facts and truth out there but for this podcast um i feel a little bit more open about like saying what i think should be done um and i think what should be done for black politics is you got to build independent black politics from the ground up you know independent black media black media that's not owned by corporations i'm looking at you the root um but also radio <laughs> one i mean that's yeah. like a black owned corporation it's still corporate media <laughs> yeah 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 so like we need you know we need we need to do black politics from the ground up and i think if we're serious about you know the issues that plague black people when it comes to again the really high rates of coronavirus deaths and and also look a lot of the essential workers fast food workers and people who are doing essential work during this pandemic are black. Okay. So there are a lot of black people who are risking their lives and their bodies to make sure this society functions and they're putting their health at risk. Um, so I, I, I want a better future for black people in America and for black people globally. And I, I, I want things to be, I want things to be different. You know, I want a better world for black people and everyone. And if, if we're serious about fighting for that, we have to, do some soul searching and see like, okay, this hasn't worked. We got to change. We got to change our approach. And my final analysis is that democratic party entry entryism and trying to capture the nonprofit industrial complex hasn't worked. We have to try something different. That's not to say I don't, I don't want to bes- besmirch the work of 
individuals who work in those kinds of sectors and the work they do because i think there is a lot of good work that gets done there but again if we're honest we have to be honest about like what works and doesn't work and i think trying to work within the democratic party that again is institutionally meant to protect corporate and petty bourgeois interests which are antagonistic to the interests of working class people and black people and all other marginalized people it's not going to work we need an independent body politic that represents those voices and we got to build it from the ground up and build institutions from the ground up to reflect those interests and push them forward so that's how i feel and do it quickly we don't have yes. time to waste the climate um, change yeah we got to do it quickly like climate change is not waiting for us so. yeah as, as soon as our odds go outside again i yeah i i i think initially we wanted this episode to be like a little more you know about how we're like personally dealing with uh you know quarantine situation um oh yeah yeah it's but but i mean i'm i'm glad i think we i think we i think we covered a lot of good ground today yeah uh, it's it's we... i i've been working on um i guess like kind of a personal writing piece and it's kind of made me i guess a little more reflective introspective also just like i'm literally just like sitting around at home with nothing to do basically uh so i have a lot of time to think when i'm not numbing my brain so i don't have to (laughs) but (laughs) um it's you know going you know i went to the grocery store today um like this was the first time that uh that they really enforced everything and that was a very strange experience having to like wait in line and uh you know knowing that like yeah you're not going to be able you may not be able to find everything that you're looking for i mean that's i mean the grocery store is supposed to be sort of this you know it's like the set piece of the bounty of american capitalism so it's very you know and i always think about that especially when i'm like depressed in grocery shopping or you know hung over or sleep deprived which is you know i guess pretty frequently <laughs> but <laughs> You know, it's, you know, now I'm like, now there's like nobody there because there's only allowed, there's a bouncer, right? And so there's only 75 people allowed in the grocery store at one time. Mm. And that is really not that many people, yeah. you know, for like your average supermarket. Um, and it's, it's very strange. Like the one, you know, they play all the like early 2000s, like uh, uh, adult contemporary, like I walked in and who stanks, <laughs> the reason was playing. Um <laughs> And, like, yeah, going about your shopping experience, but, like, during a pandemic where, like, you're, like, trying not to touch anything, be around anyone. Um, it's very weird. Uh, you know, I'm just getting, I'm starting to get a little bit of a sense of, like, what this actual period in my or anyone's life is going to be like and what the effects of it are going to be, at least on a personal level. And also, because you can't really know the entire society-wide effects but you know at least how i'm approaching it personally and you won't entirely know like what its effects are but i do i am feeling like you know i'm trying i'm trying to use this time to uh you know sort of i guess i don't want to say do internal work but um i mean i I have to focus on me because there's nothing else to focus on (laughs) So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, you know? no yeah. yeah, no. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, um, I've, 
I've been in quarantine for a month because the Bay Area, we, we shut down pretty early, and I, I, I stopped going to work right when I heard about the cruise ship docking in the Port of Oakland. I told my supervisor, I was like, you know, yeah, I'm going to work from home. And, and a few days from that, like, we basically shut down anyway. So um, I've been in quarantine. Yeah, I've been... At this point, I'm used to it, and I think um, it. I think the the like to sort of, I guess, mental like how you mentally get used to the quarantine is different for everyone. But I do think, at least from my experiences, like there's a weird, like it's initially weird and shocking and kind of scary, but then as time goes on, like, if you give it a couple weeks, you you kind of get used to it and you ease into it, and like you as a drummer like it's like you know you settle into a new rhythm or a new groove right like after like initially like you need, when you play a song you play the groove it's like okay this is kind of weird it's kind of weird and you play it a few times like okay i got the groove i got the pocket <laughs> so i think at this point we're like the, we're I've, in the quarantine pocket pretty much yeah like we we switched from one time signature to another time signature now i'm in the quarantine pocket it's a different genre so i'm i'm kind of used to it now so i've uh I started writing again. I haven't been writing since when I graduated. Well, uh, I hadn't been writing for a while, but I think the major, last major writing I did was my MFA thesis, um, which turned out to be 197 pages, which I was, I was proud of myself for finishing it, but damn, that took a lot. That's the longest, most I ever wrote. Yeah, that's, um, yeah that, that's, that's heavy. Yeah, it was 197 pages, and 20 of them were footnotes. So actual text was, yeah, say around 175 pages. Was that like, what, 50,000, 40,000, 45,000 Somewhere around there. I forgot. I had to double check. Uh, I just just remember the page count because I was, when I saw that page count, I was like, I was like, holy shit. (laughs) I wrote a lot, but I wrote in chunks over the program. So it was like, I wrote, you know, chapters separately during each workshop and then i compiled them together and edited them and then yeah it came out yeah to 197 pages so i've um i'm writing a blog post i'm trying to work on a blog post about the covid19 crisis and the um i think this sort of uh unprecedented shake in the global economy so i'm working on that and it's nice to just write um, you know, just, just, just write. Uh, so I've been doing that and, uh, been working on music. So yeah, I'll, I'll make another kind of announcement. So if you want to follow my solo music project, which is mostly just West African drumming, uh, I'm trying to mix in different instruments cause I have, um, another, I, I have in my room, I have, um, two djembe's and a, um, calabash which is like a melon it's a large melon but if you hit it it's like a percussive instrument it's a very large melon it's from actually this calabash i got is from burkina faso which ties back into the name of our podcast thomas so i i yeah i have a djembe from ivory coast another djembe from mali and the calabash is from burkina faso it's like a nice little pan-african sort of cultural reunion in my room right now uh so i'm trying to sort of experimenting with recording the djembe in my garage and getting that sound um and then i want to mix in the calabash and i have a i have a pair of uh really nice sounding maracas 
Uh, so I'm so that's what I've been doing lately. So if you guys are interested and want to follow that, I'll include a link to my SoundCloud in the show notes. But look me up on SoundCloud, SoundCloud.com slash Adam Hudson Five. Same same tag as my Twitter tag. So all my music's there. So yeah, this quarantine. Um, I was talking to a musician friend of mine, and he was like. Yeah, this will probably make us all better musicians because that's all we can do is fucking practice. You have to, yeah. You kind of yeah. have to. Yeah. yeah. I, um, whenever I ordered a uh, XLR to USB cable, I'm gonna nice. probably record. I'm gonna bust. I'm gonna have to bust the bass out because I already have nothing else to fucking do. I haven't really touched yeah. it in since I've been here. But hell, might as well. Yeah. You know. Um, I've I, also I, been. Man, I really want to play music. I've I've With been uh, you should actually Peter you should check out Ganawa music Ganawa people from Morocco mm-hmm. they they play a they play an acoustic bass called the Sintir or Gumbri it's 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 all bass driven so as a bass player I think you'd like it it's hella dope uh yeah you gotta send me some uh playlists yeah I don't I don't because I don't know where to start with all your flamenco stuff Paco de Lucia is good there's this other guy named El Chalo who's in Granada. It's like videos of this guy named El Chalo who's a flamenco guitarist. He's plays in uh in Granada, which is like really where like flamenco um started. As, as in Reagan invaded Granada? No, not <laughs> not that Granada. So the Granada in southern Spain that is very close to Morocco. The southernmost the southernmost part of Spain. Anyway, this is this uh El Chalo is a Romani Roma of ethnic group of uh, flamenco guitarist he's really good paco de lucia's very famous uh flamenco guitarist um those are good starts ganawa i think um hassan makmoon i think that's his name hold up let me look it up uh and this will be for you guys who are just looking for you know shit to listen to wait hold on there we go yeah hassan hakmoon hassan hakmoon He's a Ganawa musician, bass player. Hella dope. Um, one of his bands, it was cool. Like he mixed like traditional Ganawa Moroccan music with rock and roll. It was kind of it's pretty sick. Like he put he hooked up a uh, he got his uh, acoustic bass, but kind of electrified it. Like you know how you can like sometimes with acoustic guitars you can hook it up to an amp and like you make it sound yeah it, yeah yeah yeah. There there they you can put a pickup on an upright bass. It's- yeah yeah so he he yeah so he had one in his um yeah his, his is a, it's called a, um there's two names for it you can call it a sintir or a gumbri but it's an acoustic and the the show the the body of it looks like a box and then there's a stick and it's uh it's a bass instrument so but the 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 riffing style sounds very similar to blues music so um hassan hakmoon is really good paco de lucia uh um I've, I've been getting into his music a lot um el chalo chalo uh, c-h-a-l-o el chalo if you look him up on youtube el chalo flamenco like the dude is just uh, fucking google sick. wants to take me to el chapo which i'm not <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i've been listening to that kind of music and working on my own like independent music it's something i've been meaning to do for a while and in, in um i've been going to open mics I used to go to open mics physically when before the quarantine, but now with um, the quarantine, I've been doing these virtual open mics. Um, so 
Yeah, like mostly through Instagram Live and uh, Zoom. Um, and that's actually, you know, to be honest, like that's been helping me get my spirits up because uh, just it, even though you're not face to face, just having that sense of community, it's, uh, yeah, like it's, it's, it, you know, it, it, you know, we're social beings, humans are social creatures. So any chance to build community, you know, virtually, I think is really important. So um, that's why I've been dealing with it. Um, and yeah, we hope you guys are keeping your spirits up. It's, it's tough. I mean, I go through ups and downs, but it's, you know, um, we can and must pull through this. Um, that's all I have to say. I don't have anything else to say. Um, do you? Yeah, no, I'm pretty much, I'm pretty much set. Um, stay tuned. We're going to start putting, bringing guests on. Yeah. So. You will. You won't have to just listen to us ramble for an hour and a half. Yeah, we'll have. Yeah, we're gonna have a guest on hopefully next week. Um, hopefully next week, if not the week after. Uh, and yeah, we're we're gonna assemble some some guests to come on. And uh, yeah, so patreon.com slash real Sankara hours. Follow us at Sankara hours on Twitter, and then um, I will put our Podbean link. Which is tied to our, that's where our RSS feed is hosted. So if you click on our Podbean, uh, it's easy to follow our RSS feed from there. So, and we're on Spotify. Uh, we'll get on iTunes soon. Um, and yeah, stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, you know, try to keep your head up and your spirits up. Peace. Peace.